We're going to turn to God's word at this moment, and uh, if you have a Bible, please open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be reading tonight verses 10 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, in Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, whoever wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those of whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word. Again, to remind you, we have water on both sides. If you need water, do please grab a cup. Matt Bounds, who has been amongst us in past years, working alongside as one of our pastors and now the pastor of Bridge Church, he's going to come and open up a little bit of God's word on this subject, and then we're going to take a break, and you'll be allowed to put some questions either in the basket up here or in the back as we think about some of the issues around the Bible. So, Matt, can I invite you to come and to share with us? Thanks, Michael. Lovely to be with you again. And uh, to talk to you about such a, such a wonderful subject. Um, I want to start by sharing a story that I'm conscious I've probably shared with you before, but it's one I like sharing, so... Bear with me. Um, Kath doesn't like it so much when I share this one. But when we were engaged, um, do you remember this one, Reeves? When we were engaged, she basically she abandoned me. We got in, I fell in love. We got engaged, and then Kath went off to the other side of the world as part of her studies. So she went 12,000 miles away to a little island in the Indian Ocean. And bear in mind, and I, some of you will find it hard to get your heads around this, that there was no WhatsApp, no smartphones. I didn't have ready access to email. The only way that I could speak to her was, well, like once a week, we would try and contact each other via the payphone in the halls where she was staying. Um, and we would um, try and swap emails, but that was dependent on the email working both ends and Kath being able to book a slot in the email suite. So that, that's what it was like back in the old days. What, which meant that for any meaningful communication, one of the things we relied on hugely was letter writing, which I know, again, sounds really old-fashioned, doesn't it? The old snail mail. And, and sad little puppy dog that I was, lovelorn Matt that I was, I would literally sometimes sit at the bottom of our stairs on certain days of the week waiting for the airmail letter to drop through the letterbox so I could see what Kath had written to me. 
and I would hang on every word. I would pore over every word sometimes and think, well, what on earth does she mean by that? Why does she say that? Because it'd be a week till I got to ask her on the phone. It was, it was crazy. But I would hang on every word. That's my point. And here's the thing. The historical attitude of Christians to the Bible is something like that, though much more profound. That this book is God's personal word and words to us. And that's why Christians and churches historically have hung on every word in this book. It's why at the bridge, and I know here at Highfields, you do expository preaching. The bulk of what you do on Sundays is working through a book, working through a portion of scripture to hear what the whole of God's word says because you want to hear it because it's God's personal word to you. So at this point you might be thinking, but isn't this book also, Matt, you're saying it's God's word to us and we hang on every word, isn't it written by fallible human beings? And the short answer to that is yes. It's 100% human being written. And those human beings who wrote it were sinful, fallible human beings like you and me. But there's more to say. It's also 100% composed by one divine author. And here's where we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Where Paul says to Timothy... All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. Got to just briefly think about the situation to which Paul was writing here as he wrote to Timothy. Timothy's big problem was false teaching in the church, things that were contrary to the gospel, contrary to God's will. Paul is telling him how to combat that. And he's telling him to remember. As for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned And have become convinced of because you know those from who you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament there. He's saying to Timothy to combat this false teaching, remember what you've been taught in the past by your family from the Holy Scriptures, from the Old Testament. And he then goes on to slightly change his language but say, but speak about the same thing when he says, all Scripture is God breathed and is useful for etc. All scripture is God-breathed. That word scripture, graphe, means things that are written down. So Timothy, all these things from the Bible that you have written down are breathed out by God. Primarily, Paul's talking there to Timothy about the Old Testament, but it's obvious from the rest of the New Testament that that word scripture also encompasses what we call our New Testaments, the latter part of our Bibles. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter writes this. Speaking of, this makes, always makes me smile, this verse. Speaking of Paul. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Some of us would probably nod along to that, wouldn't we? Which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. Same word, graphe. So Peter there is saying that Paul's writings are also scripture, with the same status as the Old Testament. And then to Timothy, in the first letter to Timothy, he said... For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. He's quoting two Bible books there, Deuteronomy and Luke. So he's quite clearly saying that the Old Testament is scripture and the New Testament is scripture. So these graphe, these words, are written down by human hands, yes, because they are writings. And yet in the same breath, Paul says of these writings that they are God breathed. I love the NIV translation here. The Greek word that the scholars tell us is theopneustos. Theo for God and pneustos for breath, for spirit, for something that's breathed out. 
God is the source and author of all this, even as all this is written down by human hands. So do you see the idea? It's totally from human writers, for example, prophets scribing the very words they've audibly heard from God, psalmists using their creative and poetic gifts, historians researching and writing down what they've learned, for example, Luke, apostles receiving and writing down visions from God, Revelation, and apostles like Paul addressing particular joys and particular problems in different churches. Wide variety of human writers, but at the same time, totally from God, totally breathed out by God. The technical um, term for this that theologians use is the inspiration of scripture. The trouble with the word inspiration is it sounds a lot to me like someone breathing in, and the idea here is it's breathed out. This book is expired by God. Now, you might want to ask as one of the questions for myself, and the difficult ones I'll refer to Michael anyway, but um, you might want to ask, well, how does that process work? The short answer is, we don't know, but we get some hints in Scripture. So, in 2 Peter, Peter says this, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit when this has been written by human beings, was carrying along those writers when they wrote scripture to write down the very words of God. They weren't just human typewriters. They weren't just writing down literal words they heard. They were using their intellects, their their skills, but God, the Holy Spirit, was guiding them as they did it. So this is written by people, given by God. And this is what scripture is again and again referred to by itself as God's word. Scripture calls itself God's word because it's inspired by God. You might be thinking, well, therein lies the problem, Matt. Because you're talking about what scripture says, scripture is. You're basing what you believe about the Bible and what the Bible says. Totally circular argument. You believe the Bible is God's word because the Bible says it's God's word. Circular argument, Matt. Well, fair comment. But the reality is that when you're talking about ultimate sources of authority, you inevitably end up making a circular argument to some degree. So maybe you don't believe that the Bible is God's word. Well, why do you believe that's the case? Presumably you've thought it through. You've maybe read different sources. But ultimately you've made that decision that the Bible is not God's word. So you have decided that human reason is the ultimate authority in your life. And what tells you that human reason is the ultimate authority in your life is human reason. You're making a circular argument. Everybody, when they appeal to the ultimate authority in their life, really is making a circular argument. The question is what you stand on. Whether it's scripture or autonomous human reason or subjective feelings, something in all our lives is, as the philosophers might say, axiomatic. It's supreme. It's the the foundation, the starting point. We've all got to stand somewhere. And where Christians have historically stood, and I stand this evening, metaphorically speaking, is on God's word. Christians have historically said we use our God-given faculties like reason when we come to the Bible in order to understand it, yes. And our reason also helps us see all the evidence for Scripture's divine authority and reliability and beauty and power. But the supreme authority under which we choose to stand is Scripture itself, not our reason. God speaks to us personally in and through his word and Christians have always trusted it as such And it has proved itself to us time and time again, generation after generation. So 
that's really the, the main gist of what I want to say. What I just want to give as I start to draw to a close is some quick bullets as to what this says about Scripture. The traditional theological um, points of reference that the church has had over the years when they've said certain things about Scripture. The first one is this, that therefore, if these things are true, this book has authority. The supreme authority for the Christian church is this. Uh, sorry, I'm really, I'm old school tonight. There's no PowerPoint. You're going to have to exercise your short-term memory or take notes. Point one, this book has authority. What this book says, God says. Therefore, to disobey this book is to disobey God. To ignore this book is to ignore God. There are other authorities in the Christian life. Yes. But this is the only totally true, trustworthy, timelessly relevant, error-free authority we have. Because it is God speaking. We check all other authorities in the church, for example, our elders or the government that rules us in society. We check everything that these other authorities say against the word of God. That's the first thing about this book. It has authority. Secondly, it's part of this first point, but I'm making it a second one because it's so important. This book makes no mistakes. The terms that have historically been used for that, and there's a lot of argument and debate around them, are that it's infallible and inerrant. And at this point, somebody might be thinking, seriously? You're actually standing there, Matt, and saying, this book makes no mistakes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It doesn't preclude rough grammar being used by the writers sometimes. Apparently, the scholars tell us that Mark, for example, in his gospel, his Greek isn't the best. It's not the most polished. He makes the old grammatical mistake. Well, that doesn't mean that it's making mistakes as to truth at all. This doesn't preclude the fact that the Bible writers often approximated. They, they, they rounded up numbers just like we do today. They made free quotations, so they quoted other authorities, and they didn't do, it, do exact quotes like we do today, but that's the way they quoted people in those days. This doesn't preclude phenomenological language. For example, the Bible writers saying that the sun rose and the sun set. Well, we do that today as well, don't we? You know, all these things get pointed to, ah, there you go, there's errors in Scripture. No, it's just normal human language being used. But what the Bible affirms is true, it never gets wrong. And time and time again, I've got to say, when questions are asked and so-called contradictions or errors are pointed out, there are excellent answers to most of them. And I trust that the few harder ones that we might find it a bit more difficult to answer will be made clear one day. But the point is that the scripture says, and I believe it, that this is God speaking to you and me. Every word of the original writings, which we have with 99 plus percent accuracy, is from God to us and can be totally trusted. They're the two big attributes of scripture I wanted to flag up, I guess. It has authority and it makes no mistakes. A couple of others, just very quickly as I draw to a close. This book is also clear and understandable. Uh, I'm talking here about what's been traditionally called the clarity of scripture. In all the essentials, with the Holy Spirit's help, every important aspect of this book can be understood. I mean, even the Apostle Peter had to say, yeah, Paul sometimes in his writings, there's a few bits that's hard to understand. But by and large, the important things in Scripture are very clear and very easily understood. Psalm 19 says that these words make wise the simple, and I'm so glad about that. So this is clear, this word. It is also necessary. We need this book. We are Christians only because of this book, because we read it, or someone read, to, read it to us, or somebody shared something from this book, from its message, and that's how we came to faith in Jesus. Because creation shows us that there is a God, but only this book shows us what he's done to love us and to save us and bring us into his kingdom. We need this book. It is absolutely necessary to 
come to faith and to live the Christian life. It's also sufficient. That might sound the same as necessary. But sufficient means something a bit different. Necessary means we need it. Sufficient means it's all we need. We don't actually need anything else. In God's goodness, we have many excellent writings given to us. We've got a plethora of Christian books we can read these days in English, haven't we? And I'm very grateful for that. But the only thing we need for the Christian life, and we do need it, is this book given to us by God, the Word of God. This book is sufficient. I just want to close with this last point. Yet, it has authority. It makes no mistakes. It's clear. It's necessary. It's sufficient. But also, I I don't want to close without saying this. This book, the Word of God written down, has power. It has power. This doesn't just give us theology. This doesn't just give us facts. This book does things because God's word does things. When God speaks, things happen. When God spoke, creation came into being. And when he speaks through his word, things happen. The writer of the Hebrews said, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you catch that? The word of God is living and active. We cannot treat this as just a hyper-accurate manual of mere facts, a theological repository. This is the personal God speaking to real persons, you and me. And when he does that, things happen. His word, Isaiah says, never returns to him void. It always does something. It is powerfully, beautifully, scarily comforting. In English, apparently about 750,000 words from the living God direct to you and me. Can I just pray before we go into the next part? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words that tell us that all scripture is God-breathed. Help us to think and reflect about what this means and respond to your word to us, this love letter from you to sinful human beings. Thank you for this book, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Matt. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to have a bit of a break. I'm going to make it about five, six minutes, and uh, that's just because I don't want to keep us too long tonight. But it's to give you the opportunity, if you want to take a, grab a, a glass of water, do please do that from one of our pitchers of water. If you'd like to, to maybe have a question, we're going completely old school tonight, so we don't have old, you know, Slido. And, and I hope you remember how to write on paper. So we're, we're using old school tonight. But we've got a basket up here. Here and also at the back corner, you can put a question in. I've got some questions. We're going to be discussing those in a minute. So we'll give you five minutes, chat otherwise with the person next to you. Uh, Matt, I, I suspect it wouldn't be unfair to say that the, the church has to fight the battle for the Bible every generation. Yeah, I think that is completely fair to say. It, um, you know, you go back to the 19th, 20th century and the church was fighting liberalism and everything it was saying about the word of God and it just kind of repackages itself in every generation, I think. So yes, I'd agree. And I suppose it would be fair to say that at the moment that this is one of the huge battles, and, and I'm talking about those who are actually within churches that believe in the word of God, 
that, that this is one of the main issues in our day, or, or how would you judge that? Yeah, I think it is, I, because I think it is in every generation. I think the, the, the pressure points change and are different, aren't they? So I think maybe a generation or so ago, there was a stigma for Christians, but if you believe that God created the world and, it, and it, it didn't have a naturalistic beginning, well, that's not so much an issue for society now. Other things are instead, but always the underlying issue, the presenting issue is that we as Christians believe God's word is true and we trust it and we trust him. And there's always going to be an aspect or more of scripture that flies in the face of what the culture is saying, which is why I think, yes, we have to, um, we have to make this case lovingly and clearly every generation within the church and, and outside. I suppose one of the questions many would ask in, in a variety of different ways is that the, the Bible's an old book. And uh, best understanding is perhaps the, the, the last book that was written in the Bible, perhaps the book of Revelation, yeah. around maybe 90, 100 AD. Hmm. So why should we listen to a book that was written so long ago within our pre- present modern culture? What, how would you answer that? Well, I, th- I think I start by saying it's always interesting, I think, when people ask a question like that, because, again, I think that happens every generation. C.S. Lewis talked about this, didn't he, in some of his writings, that every generation tends to engage in chronological snobbery. We think we're the ones who've got it right, and we've seen everything the most clearly in the, all of world history, and there's also this sort of uh, myth of complete objectivity, that we're objective in our generation because we're modern, and older writings don't have so much wisdom. And the funny thing is there's actually no um, logical, reasonable uh, reason to think that way about ancient writings. What we do have to do, absolutely, and I didn't get the chance to say anything about this, because you only gave me 15 minutes, um, is we've got to make very sure that we read the Bible in context. We have to do the best we can to understand the context that those writers were writing out of, what their original audience would have thought, and we need to get inside the text to understand it right. But if this is timeless truth from God, if this is all God breathed, then it's relevant for every generation. Um, and it's fresh and new every morning, even though it is an ancient book. Sort of spinning off that, uh, one of the questions we have tonight is uh, the, the fact that when we look at the Bible, it, it's written in all kinds of different literature styles. And uh, uh, they, perhaps some of them, made more sense in past generation than our own generation. So I just wonder, how do we relate to the different literary styles within our own culture today? Mm. Um, I, I think part of the answer is that, that God gives gifts to his church. He gives teachers to the church in, in every generation. Uh, and we are, we are really blessed and privileged in the English-speaking world to have so many resources to draw on. Um, scholars who are writing today and who have written over the last few centuries in particular that we can draw on to help us understand um, these things right and understand them in context. Um, so I think, I think that's really important to say that, um, yes, these are ancient writings. Yes, we need help um, in understanding them. But we, we have been given those scholars, we've been given those teachers in the church, and they can really help us with that. It's come up from, from one of uh, uh, those who put a question in today is that they put it this way sometimes I feel like I want revenge or injustice and I think that's really we can understand that when we think about some of the atrocities happening over in Ukraine, Myanmar at the moment I don't know why I'm coming in 
that. Uh, but if you think that, how do we best understand Scripture's clarity that revenge is God's, mm-hmm. not ours? I mean, I think there's two things there. One is that Scripture is clear on that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I, I think that's very clear from Scripture that we, um, we are told to trust the sovereign God um, who is our Father and not seek revenge ourselves. So I think, that, I think the principle is quite clear in Scripture. I think often what's underlying a question like that, for me anyway, because I identify with it, it's the emotional aspect of this, isn't it? That um, I know God's word says that I shouldn't want revenge and I shouldn't be consumed with unrighteous anger, but I often am. And it's about trusting God. This is his personal word to me. He tells me in his word to, to trust him. He tells me that he's sovereign. He tells me that justice is his and vengeance belongs to him and I, I just need to trust him. Um, so sometimes I think getting the principles out of God's word takes a lot of work and the principles aren't clear. I think that principle is clear. That's probably more about personal trust that this is God's word. This is God speaking to me and I can trust him. I think it's interesting. Uh, part, part behind that question is that the, the concern for injustice and um, as we think about that, we, we find ourselves in a present generation that overemphasizes, maybe in an unbalanced way, I'll put it this way, uh, love and compassion and mercy in these senses, and really is uncomfortable with the whole aspect about injustice and, and retribution in that sense. What's your understanding of the Bible within that sense? How do we come to grips with some of the very strong language we find. Mm. Um, I think one of the main things is it's just it's being aware of the storyline of the Bible, isn't it, and where it starts, and what the story arc of the Bible is, and where it finishes. Um, that you can, if you read passages of Scripture about um, God's wrath against some of the things He commanded in the Old Testament, um, it can be extremely hard to get your head around them. Emotionally, very hard to accept them. But once you accept that God is a good and holy creator who made humanity in his image and we have rebelled against him, once you see what the storyline of the Bible is, that sin is cosmic treason, it's spitting in the face of a holy God, then then you start to see his justice and his righteousness in context, I think. And, and that really helps. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, I, I am a sinner and I'm never going to be completely comfortable emotionally with the idea of the justice and holiness of God, especially when it's directed at my sin. Um, so I, I think locating it in the story, the story arc of scripture just, just helps hugely to, to get these things in context and to understand them right. How would you answer the, the question, and I think this is a, a very relevant one that, that comes up so many times, I think, in our present sort of situation, and, and even, I think, within the church itself, and that is the, the sense that the Bible seems very male-centered book and rather negative about women. I mean, how would you answer someone that would say that? Uh, well, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say the Bible is negative about women. I, I think um, it, it reads very differently to um, the way that documents would be written today. Again, it's written from a certain historical and cultural location, um, and so it's, it's not what modern people might expect when they read it. But again, I think it's about the whole storyline of Scripture. When you read from the beginning of Scripture that God makes 
Adam and Eve, male and female, in his image. The image of God is not complete without the male or without the female. Um, when you track through scripture and you see the, the way that um, women are used in the storyline of, uh, of the Old Testament, you know, um, Rahab and, uh, and Ruth and, and Deborah and others, and, and often commended for their faith. And then you get to the New Testament and uh, Jesus has female disciples, which was pretty radical in those days. Mm. Um, the initial, the first witnesses to the resurrection, the, the human beings who had the honor of being witnesses to the resurrection were women. And again, that, that was not the way you would have constructed things if you wanted to persuade people in the ancient world by having women as witnesses to the resurrection. So the, the Bible actually really honors women in so many ways. Jesus particularly honors women in so many ways that were contrary to the culture of the day. Um, so yeah, it, it doesn't read the way that modern documents might when it comes to presenting male and female as pretty much exactly the same. And there are differences and wonderful asymmetries when it comes to the equality of male and female. Mm. But uh, no, I wouldn't say it's negative towards women at all. But then half the congregation may think I'm a bit biased there because I'm male. <laughs> that's, that's my view. Fair Hopefully enough. they'd agree. Fair enough. I think it's, am I not correct that it's a historical reality that actually every culture into which the Bible has gone into has actually changed the views of that culture towards the positive for women. And that actually, today, that many of the, the, we call about equality rights and whatever, have actually been won by Christians in past generations that insisted yeah. that there should be a change yeah. of view. Is that correct? Yeah, I, well, I, I've certainly read similar things. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm no expert on, but I've certainly read from the experts such things, including, you know, for example, the abolition of slavery. That the, in, in, in Britain, the, the drive for the abolition of slavery from Wilberforce was for, from a Christian because of, biblical Christian principles, principles from God's word that drove him in that. So when this word is believed by Christians, it has a transformative effect on the society around it to some degree, inevitably. That, that brings us to one of the questions we have tonight. And, and that's how do we know the Bible's really true? Because when we think about situations such as you are just mentioning with slavery and how that's changed, uh, even amongst views amongst Christians over the centuries... How do we know that the views we have today are correct? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's a good question. Isn't it? I, I've, heard, I've heard that said um, on social media fairly recently. You know, well, how can you believe the Bible is God's word? Because the Bible condones slavery. Um, and obviously our culture um, is dead against slavery, which is absolutely right. You know, I think we'd agree that, wouldn't we, that pretty much everybody in our culture thinks slavery is an evil and a terrible thing. You've got slavery in the Old Testament and then in the New. The Bible writers don't seem to speak against it much, therefore the Bible is pro-slavery. Um, and that, that, that's used to undermine God's word. But, I mean, a few things about that argument, I think, a few assumptions that have been made there. One is that when the Bible speaks, uses the word slave, which some English translations do, that it's talking about the same thing as our culture is talking about when it talks about slavery. And actually, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, the system of bond servants under the Old Testament and actually Roman bond servants and slaves, it wasn't exactly the same thing. It wasn't evil to the same degree that racial slavery in the States in the 1700s and 1800s was, or indeed modern slavery and people trafficking today. Those are awful evils. Um, the system of bond servants and slavery in the, in the Bible was not by any means a good thing. Um, but it, that's the first thing to say. It's, it's not exactly the same thing as our culture talks about when it talks about slavery. 
Um, the other thing is the Bible doesn't condone slavery. Uh, slavery is regulated in the Old Testament, for example, um, because it's accepted as something that happens in a fallen world and God regulates it. Uh, so just as God um, hates divorce, not divorcees, but divorce, and yet regulates it in his word in the same way he regulated slavery in the Old Testament. There are actually commands in the Old Testament um, prescribe, pre- um, prescribing the death penalty for anybody who steals a person. Um, so that sort of slavery is clearly spoken against in Scripture. The type of slavery that took place in those days is regulated in Scripture, and slavery is absolutely not approved by Scripture. Um, and I think you can make a really strong argument that actually the Bible, although it doesn't speak directly to institutional slavery, for example, in New Testament times, um, it absolutely sows the seeds for the eventual destruction of slavery. If you read the, the little letter of Philemon, for example... Mm. Paul doesn't say to Philemon, I I command you to legally free your slave Onesimus. But what he does say is, um, accept him as a brother. Mm. He's your brother now. The gospel, which is the main focus of the scripture and the main focus of the New Testament, undermines all these social evils um, and ultimately sows the seeds for their destruction. So I think when people make arguments like that to undermine scripture, it, it doesn't stack up. Um, Peter Williams, by the way, if you want a more coherent version of what I've just been saying about slavery, he's done a fantastic talk on this that you can Google, and he talks about slavery in the Old Testament and how the Bible does not condone it. And I think, you know, the other side, again, when one looks at the historical perspective, that it was Christians who were convinced of what the Bible teaches who were the ones who brought an abolition of slavery, and, and even during a generation in which they were thought to be nutters. Yeah. And it, yeah. and it, the whole abolition of slavery was economically to the country of Great Britain mm. almost ruinous yeah. and paying off those, those, those whole reality. So I think, you know, again, it, it was Christians at the forefront from their mm. conviction of scriptures, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Uh, an interesting one here, and, and I think it, it has to do with how we understand the Old Testament and how we understand the New Testament. And it's, and it's often said that it's often the New Testament that clarifies the Old Testament, interprets the Old Testament, and the Old Testament teaches us what God is going to do, but the New Testament clarifies it. And the question here is, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, mainly about Jesus, but what are some of the key things that convince you of its interpretation? So what are the key things that convince me of the New Testament's Interpretation, interpretation of the old, the old particularly wow. with reference to Christ. Man, that's a good question. Can I come back next week and give a half-hour answer on that one? <laughs> um, I, I think there are so many. There are so many wonderful threads and themes that run through the Bible, aren't there? And it's it's not that the Old Testament is a bit jumbled and unclear, and then you get all this clarity in the New Testament. I mean, Paul said to Timothy that the Old Testament scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. If you've got your Old Testament, there's enough there about Jesus to save you. Um, but it's, it is true that the, the wonderful gospel truths, the, the fact that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, they are, they are crystal clear in the New Testament that, in a way that they aren't in the Old. And I, so I think what, what convinces me when I, when I trace themes through, so um, I'm off on study leave tomorrow, I'm reading a book on, uh, don't fall asleep on me, I'm reading a book on typology. You know, types in the Old Testament, pictures, shadows that point forward to Jesus. What I love about this particular book that I'm reading uh, by Jim Hamilton Jr. is that um, sometimes people talk about typology in the Old Testament as if it's, um, oh, look at, look at the magic trick this New Testament writer pulled off. They saw something obscure in the Old Testament. They made it a type 
of Jesus, a, a picture of Jesus. And actually, he makes a really compelling case that whenever you see those types in the Old Testament, when you read them in context, understanding the language right, understanding that this, this Bible writer uh, was thinking about what they were doing, they were intending to write these things as types. They, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they understood enough about what was coming that they could deliberately write these things knowing that they were pointing forward to something greater, pointing forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. And, and there are so many of these things you can trace through from old to new. It's incredible. There are just so many of them. And the more time you spend reading up on them and studying them, convinced I've been that this is not just a loose collection of 66 books that kind of have the same theme. This is... 66 books written by 40 or so human authors, but absolutely clearly written by one divine author because it just all hangs together so wonderfully. So loads of answers I give, but typology is just one part of the answer for me, I think. Okay. Uh, we don't want to uh, go too long because we don't a very warm evening. So let me just give you one that's an old question that's been asked many, many times, and then just a final one that's been brought to us tonight. And the the gold question is simply this, that some claim that science has disproved parts of the Bible of what it teaches, and therefore the modern science, modern culture has basically made the Bible look as if it is wrong. Hmm. How would you answer that? Um, I'll start by saying I don't agree. Um, the Bible and science do not contradict each other. Sure, there are some questions we can't answer. Uh, as well as we might like to, but they, they clearly don't contradict each other. I think often, it seems to be two main things that objection is based on. One is often talking about creation, you know, the first couple of chapters of Genesis. We really haven't got time to unpack that in detail now, but, you know, for example, pointing out contradictions, apparent contradictions between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, because they describe sequences differently. But I think when you read those things in context, understanding them for the sort of literature they are it's it's obvious that you've got a broad brushstrokes picture painted in genesis one and then a zoom in in the details in genesis two and that when you read it in context as the original hearers would have understood it um there is no necessary contradiction between um what the bible says and and many of the pronouncements of of modern science so i, I think it's creation is one of the big areas of, of conflict um and the other one is, is often about the sort of language that um, Scripture uses. You know, people often criticize it as non-scientific language. Again, I mentioned it in my talk about you know, the sun rising and setting uh, above the disk of the earth. Oh, there, there you go. See, they didn't have a clue, and they thought these things were true. Well, no, they're just using picture language and language about natural phenomena, just like we do today. We talk about the sun rising, uh, even though we know this, that the... the the effect of the sun rising is actually because the earth is rotating around the sun on its axis and that appears to make the sun rise and set. We use that sort of language too. So people often jump on this, this language that they say is old-fashioned and unscientific, missing the point that in context the Bible is not written primarily as a science text, but it's communicating true truth when it's understood in context. Um, so that's a very short way of saying, no, I don't agree. We don't have all the answers, sure, but... Time and time again, when I'm, when I'm pushed back to scripture and reading what scholars have written and friends I know who are scientists, um, we did a podcast with Emmett McDonald recently on Genesis 1 and 2 and science and faith and um, creation and science, and um, the, the answers are there, and the, the Bible stands to reason every time. 
I think it's really helpful to just to remind us that there, there are answers out there, and that might be really opportunity for us to look out on uh, podcasts or, or some of on the uh, Internet as well, because there are those who have wrestled quite deeply with many of these questions, and I think that's, yeah. that's a really helpful side. I think it's also really helpful to say, sorry, Michael, just quickly, that I don't think, I don't think anybody in the room, certainly me, would claim to be experts on, on any of these areas. Mm. But we, there are experts we can go to. You know, you don't, we can have confidence in God's word. And when people ask these sort of questions sometimes, it's, it's fine to say, Jim, that's a really good question. Can I, can I go away and have a think and a read up and come back to you? That, that there's, there's absolutely no harm in that. And that's often what we have to do. Okay. Well, one final question, which is a, a, a really interesting question. And uh, you, you spoke within... Uh, your talk about the, some of the prophets in the Old Testament who, who heard the word of God and who spoke it or wrote it down, uh, some of the major prophets like Ezekiel, Elijah, Jeremiah, in that sense. How would you answer those who would hold a continuous view, and that is that some of the gifts, such supernatural gifts, still continue even within our day, and they haven't all uh, disappeared with the end of the age of the apostles, how would you interact with them, particularly with the understanding of modern prophets? And are they producing new scriptures? And if they're not, how do we understand modern prophets as opposed to Old Testament prophets? Why are they seen different? See, I thought I was going to get out tonight without having that question asked. That's a really good question. Uh, the way I would respond to someone who takes a continuationist point of view, saying that all the gifts in the New Testament are for today, is that I'd agree with them, because I am one. So that's the starting point. But uh, th- this is something that Christians um, think differently about and disagree on from Scripture. Um, I think my argument would be that when you read... I- I'd agree with writers like Wayne Grudem on this, that when you read... Um, in the New Testament about the, the gift of prophecy that's used there because it's a gift that the church is commanded to weigh up uh, and judge, then that's clearly something that's been weighed up and judged against Scripture, which is our prime authority. So I'm one of those Christians who believes that, yes, all the gifts are for today, including the gifts of prophecy, word of tongue, word, uh, word of knowledge, word of wisdom. But whenever anybody comes with a word like that, the, the only thing we can do is weigh it up against Scripture. And if it stacks up against scripture, fine. If it doesn't, we, we reject it. Um, so I don't, th- I don't think that understanding of uh, prophecy, for example, undermines um, the doctrine of scripture that I was outlining tonight. And the reason I think that, and I would agree with writers like Grudem, is that I don't think when you read about um, prophecy in the New Testament, although the same English word is used throughout, I don't think it's talking about exactly the same thing as prophecy in Old Testament times where Old Testament prophets said to the people, thus saith the Lord. This is word for word what's coming from God, and if you reject this, you're rejecting God. I don't think when you read about New Testament prophecy, that's what you're seeing. Um, What I do do have a lot of sympathy with, and I agree with my cessationist Christian friends about this, who believe that prophecy has ceased, I absolutely agree with them that we have to maintain the primacy of Scripture, whatever we believe about New Testament prophecy. Um, uh, Because... Every word of this is from God and can be trusted and is infallible. If I come to you with a word of prophecy, Michael, you've got to weigh it up against Scripture and you are not taking every word from my mouth as infallible. So that's, in a nutshell, how I try to answer that one. It's interesting that that even in the book of Acts, you see with Paul when he was going to Jerusalem, that one of the prophets said, don't go. Hmm. And it's very interesting. And Paul, the apostle, disobeyed what they said. Yeah. 
And, and I think that many would say that, that, that Paul seems to have recognized it, even though there was a continuing sense mm. in which some people may have a, an understanding to a degree of what God was trying to put upon their heart. He never saw it as infallible yeah. and actually felt quite comfortable from his own understanding mm. to actually go against that. Yeah. And I, I think that's helpful, as you say, that the New Testament, when you look at it, it has those nuances mm. that they seem to recognize a lesser authority than yeah. they ever would have the Old Testament prophets. And so important to say, isn't it? I think if you've got two Christians in the room, two evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-loving Christians who have different views on prophecy, mm. then nine times out of ten, they will both agree on this, that the only infallible authority in the Christian life and the prime authority in the Christian life is God's word to us in the Bible. And, and you cannot put prophecy or anything else on the same level as it. Matt, thank you ever so much. It's been superb having you tonight. And let's give Matt a hand. I think it's been really helpful. If anyone would like to sort of follow up some of the, the, these issues and thinking about them, I have a few copies of a particular book. I don't know if it's still in print called Confident. Uh, that's really, really helpful to look at those issues. So if you would like one of those, I have three up here. And also, you may just find Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word, as a really helpful book. You can get that on Amazon. I think that's still in print. Uh, Very, very helpful. Matt, thank you ever so much for coming, doing that for us. I'm going to close in prayer. God bless you, and thank you ever so much for coming tonight on such a hot night. Most gracious and merciful Lord, we come tonight and we bow with humility, wonder, and joy that you have spoken into our generation with your word. We thank you for the enduring word of God that speaks to us with clarity in the midst of so many voices and so many that want to say that all that we knew in the past is no longer relevant. May you help us to love your word dearly, and may you help it to speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.